Uh, this week and next week, uh, we are going to be looking at Noah and the Great Flood. Uh, George will be teaching next week on chapters 7 through 9. I'll be doing chapter 6 today. 7 through 9, that's a lot to, to teach on. And the reason we're doing that is, first of all, Genesis is a massive book. And rather than take us three years to go through it, we're just going to do it in a year and a half. So in order for that to happen, there'll be certain times when we take big chunks of Scripture uh, because, it's, because Genesis is mostly narrative. Okay, so you're, you're, not, you're not having the same kind of thing that you do, like let's say in an epistle like Ephesians, where not even just every verse, but sometimes every phrase in every verse has some significant theological impact. Uh, with narrative, you have, you have big, greater sweeping uh, stories, um, and you're getting to see history played out as God acts in human history. So I would encourage you, in preparation for next week, I know a lot of you men go ahead and read the passage that uh, we're going to be studying on Thursday mornings. I would especially encourage all of you, if you don't do that, please do that next week for chapters 7 through 9 of Genesis, because George is probably not going through it verse by verse. Uh, you guys wouldn't get out of here until you know 10.30 or maybe lunch. Uh, so he's going to be looking at some of the key things that are in there that God wanted us to know about himself as he as he acted in, in human history. Well, this story of Noah and the uh, flood is, is a controversial one, or maybe we could we better put it, there's a lot of skepticism around this. It was 147 years ago, uh, in November of 1872, that uh, a guy named George Smith was poring over these cuneiform tablets uh, that had been taken from an excavation site in uh, ancient Nineveh and brought to the British Museum. So there at the British Museum in London in November of 1872, George Smith makes this amazing discovery as he pours over these ancient Babylonian tablets. Now George Smith was an unlikely guy to be making this incredible discovery of these uh, uniform, uh, cuneiform tablets. Um, unlikely because this guy had, had quit school, had stopped going to school when he was 14 years old. And he had gone to work for an engraving shop there in London. Well, it turns out that George Smith had an incredible aptitude for, for detail and patterns and seeing how things fit together. He also had a fascination with uh, Mesopotamian culture. And so <clears throat> on his lunch breaks, George Smith would leave the engraving shop and, and travel just a few blocks uh, uh, across London to the British Museum. And he would go there and he would look at these things and want to study these things. And it turned out that he was actually really good at figuring out how these uh, different fragments that were coming from the excavation sites in, uh, in ancient Nineveh, how they actually fit together. And he ended, up getting, he ended up getting hired as kind of an apprentice there at the British Museum. But more than an aptitude for detail, what was fascinating about this George Smith guy is that he had an incredible aptitude in, in understanding the code of this cuneiform language. He didn't crack the code. The other scholars had done so. But around that time, around 1872, uh, the code for that, those, those hieroglyphics had been cracked. And they were able to start translating these ancient Babylonian tablets uh, into the English language. And George Smith just happened to be really good at this. So there in November of 1872, he's pouring over these cuneiform tablets there in the British Museum, and he makes an astounding discovery. 
What he was reading about was what we now call the Gilgamesh Epic. And it's a story of an, a worldwide flood, a Babylonian story of a worldwide flood. And this guy <laughs> who builds this amazing boat to be able to survive this flood and how he sends out a raven. I mean, the details that go along with this story and the, and the account that we have in Genesis, uh, the, the connection uh, but, or the similarities are astounding. Well, I think what, what happened with that is maybe different than what George Smith had expected. Instead of it being something that would, that would affirm the, the story we have in Genesis, what happened was that liberal, liberal scholars, and that liberal scholarship was on the uprise in the late 1800s, liberal scholarship starts with the presupposition that there cannot be miracles, that we can only have in reality what science can explain. And so they tried to look at Scripture with the idea of, okay, well, how can we understand this recognizing there can't be miracles? So assuming that they're not miracles, what they took with George Smith's discovery was, well, ha, this proves that the account that we have in Genesis is actually a myth. And the reason they said this is because those cuneiform tablets, those cuneiform tablets predate or were, or were engraved or written before the, the account that Moses wrote down in the Pentateuch. And they say, see, these came before this. Therefore, clearly, Noah's account, or excuse me, Moses' account of Noah is just based on, it's just borrowed from this Babylonian myth in order to, to craft this, this view of God. Well, what about the ark? Well, in our lifetime, right, how many, how many times have we heard about expeditions going to the Ararat Mountains, you know, to discover the ark? And how many times have we actually heard that the ark was discovered? I mean, multiple times, even in the last decade. I pulled up this, uh, this headline from National Geographic in uh, 2010. It says this, I think it was May of 2010. This is the, the title of the article, Noah's Ark Found in Turkey? Question mark. And then the subtitle was, the expedition team is 99.9% sure. Others, well, they aren't. <laughs> and as we've, as, we, as we've seen with all these expeditions, there's been all this, oh, here's, the, here's this image underneath the snow. And then we find out, ah, it, it, if it wasn't a hoax, it was just a, a giant mistake. Or, oh, here's these pieces of petrified wood. So this proves that ah, we're not exactly sure that this is petrified wood. And over and over again, it seems like, well, the claims are made, uh, it, it ends up being debunked somehow. Um, even uh, as one writer, I think it was in this article, uh, one, one guy says, hey, listen, I don't know of a single expedition that has gone to the Ararat Mountains to try to find Noah's Ark and not found it. He's like, hey, if you're going to look for it, you're probably going to make up how you found it uh, when you get there. So what does that mean for us this morning? I mean, can this, as we read this, can we, can we trust this? Is this, a, is, this a, is this a myth? Is this, is we just have to receive it as allegory? Do we just have to receive it as a parable to try to help us understand God? Or can we receive this as accurate history of God acting in human history? Well, I want to assure you, brothers, that there is a lot of reason, a lot of evidence for us to receive this as it's given to us. It's given to us, first of all, as an accurate account. It's not in any way suggested by Moses that he was writing a story, a parable, for us to understand something. 
that was given to us by Moses as this is what happened. This is God's word. But even beyond that, let me just say this. When it comes to, let's say, something like the, the Gilgamesh epic and the argument that, well, these tablets were written before the, uh, the account in Genesis, um, th- there are very, honestly, easy and direct answers uh, to something like that. Uh, for instance, in the Gilgamesh epic, um, every historian, regardless of their presuppositions, every historian would agree that long before there was, there was, before language was written down, before there was written language, long before there was written, written language, there was an oral tradition that handed down history. Every historian knows that. Every historian agrees with that. So long before the tablet was written down, long before the, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, there was a careful, very careful, oral tradition handing down the history of what happened. So there's an easy explanation for this. Uh, just because the Babylonians wrote down what was maybe known throughout the entire world about this great flood, just because it was written down on that tablet before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, doesn't in any way require us to believe that Moses was grabbing uh, from this Babylonian account. It's simply that one guy wrote it down before the other guy. Now the question is, who's, who's accurate? Well, there's reason to believe that, that Moses is accurate, that his is, is the truth here for several reasons. One, the detail that's in here, the detail of the, of the dimensions and all that, was, that's an unusual thing to do unless you're actually recording history. It's interesting to note that the Gilgamesh epic doesn't have that detail of the dimensions of the ark and, and so on, things like that. But there's even more for us in this. Because if you look at the New Testament writers, the New Testament writers affirm Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 as being actual history. Peter, Peter uh, addresses it both in his first epistle and the second epistle. And he treats it clearly as if this is actual history. He doesn't treat it as story, allegory, or anything like that. The writer of Hebrews does the exact same thing. He treats Genesis as, as, as it was received from Moses. This is actual history. Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew 24, when speaking about the days of Noah, speaks about it as if it were actual history, not as if it were a parable or a story. And we know Jesus told parables. So Jesus differentiated those things. So we have the testimony of Jesus himself that these things are true. So brothers, as we read this, we can be assured that this is something that God has for us. And let's not lose sight of this, because sometimes this is where our own skepticism can come in, our own problems come come in. Remember the reason that God has given us uh, His Word and given us Genesis, and specifically this morning given us Genesis 6. It's not so that we could figure out where exactly the ark landed and then go on an expedition for it. It's not so that we can try to piece together, well, were there kangaroos in the ark? And what, what was the reason God has given us Genesis and given us his word and given us actually these verses here? Is that we might know God. God gave us his word in order to reveal who he was. And in doing so, for us to understand our own sinfulness and brokenness. And then to reveal to us his salvation. So what's being made clear here in these verses that we're about to read, is who God is, who we are, and how God's going to respond. 
So let's read those verses and then and let's go ahead and dig in on, on our study. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. <clears throat> These are the generations of Noah. Remember, again, that's one of those break, breaking points. That's one of those, the way that... Uh, uh, Genesis is, is divided up as these are the generations of. So we have another here, another section coming towards us. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how, how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Our passage this morning uh, divides up, I think, nicely into five sections that really do help us understand uh, who God is, that, that reveal the character of God. In verses 9 and 10, you see there in your outline, we see the man of God. What a powerful statement to say there in these verses that Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation. You have to ask yourself, was this Noah's doing? Did God look and say, wow, Noah, this guy Noah, he is just a really good guy. He's really obedient. He's, he's, he's righteous and blameless. Was he the one that, that there was something in Noah that, that you go, wow, this guy is just so good. He's got to be set apart from this. Well, that can't be completely accurate. He might have been better than most around him, but we even know, you'll see next week, he, he sinned. You see next week in 7, 8, and 9, you're going to see his own sinfulness, his own failure. So it can't just be something inside him. And actually, in Hebrews, you find us, we keep going back to Hebrews 11, and I want almost to turn there right now. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear for us where this righteousness came from. What was it that made, that made uh, Noah righteous in the eyes of God? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There it is. How is it that, that Noah was righteous? He became righteous in the same way that if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become righteous. He became an heir of righteousness. He received righteousness by faith. He did not receive righteousness by his works. It was not by good works that these things happened. And you even see this again. Uh, we're not going into We're not. You'll study verse, uh, chapter 7, 8, 9 next week. But the very first verse of chapter 7 of Genesis says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Actually, in the Hebrew, maybe a, a better way to translate, this is translated word for word, but a better way for us to understand and receive it is this, that God regarded him as righteous. That he, that he looked upon him as righteous because God had given his righteousness. Remember a couple weeks ago, we had talked about that those, those, those turning points you see in Scripture. One of them happened there at verse 8. Uh, we had studied last week the first six verses of, of, of Genesis 6, and we'd said we'd just seen the depravity of man. We'd just seen it, it hit verse 5 and say, every inclination of everyone's heart was continually evil. And, it, and you were just sloping down. And then there in verse 8, it says, but, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and remember, we, we turned to Romans chapter 3. We talked about how the, from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, that Paul writes about the depravity of humanity, the brokenness of all of us, the sinfulness, the rebellion against God, how everyone, the pagan man, the, the moral man, even the religious man, if they try to rely on their own self, everyone, all of us, the depravity of our own souls, the, the self-righteousness, the, the selfishness. And then in verse 21, that great that great change, that great shift, it said, but now a righteousness of God has been revealed from heaven. And so this is what has happened. This is what has happened to Noah, that he's been regarded as righteous, that God was counting Christ's righteousness to come and applying it to Noah. That's what's happening. A man of God, a man of God is first and foremost not a good guy. <laughs> a man of God is first and foremost a one who has received the mercy and grace of God where God has regarded you as righteous. He has set his affection upon you. He has decided to love you and to give you his righteousness. That's the starting point for a man of God. That's what makes a man of God. A man of God is not made by his works. Man of God is made by the applied righteousness of Christ upon you. That's what we're seeing here in verses 9 and 10. That God has regarded him as righteous, regarded him as blameless, that he's counting Christ's righteousness on Noah because of his faith. He's become an heir of righteousness. Well, secondly, in verses 11 through 13, we see the justice of God. We see the justice of God. Notice what it says in verse 12. It says, and God saw the earth. And then later on in verse 13, it says, And then God said, I have determined to make an end. So God saw, and then he determined. God was a holy God, completely void of anything sinful. And God in his omniscience sees. Boy, I've thought about that a lot this week, brothers. Brothers. 
just to be aware for all of us. There is no, there's nothing hidden from His sight. Those things that you and I, those things that you and I perceive that happen in, in darkness or happen that, that we're hiding, they're not hidden from God, brothers. Those, those, those sins that we think uh, our wives and family and they, they aren't seen, they, they're not hidden from God. God sees. What does it say in verse 5 that we looked at a couple weeks ago? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What did God see? He saw into the heart of man. Not just our actions. He sees into our hearts, the omniscience of God sees, and then having seen that, so there's holiness, and there's judgment, and there's justice. And I also thought about this. In fact, my, my first inclination was not to write as our point number two, the justice of God. My first inclination was to write the judgment of God. And then I paused, and I, and I, I put justice. I'm like, why, why did I just do that? And I thought, I think I know why I did that. Because in our, in our culture, in our day, right now, for all of us, justice, we like that word. That's a good word. Everybody I, everybody I ever meet is in favor of justice. Whether you're a Christian or not, want just, justice is a, is a, in our culture is a good word. Judgment is not. So if you're in the unbelieving world, judgment's bad. Sadly, even in the Christian world, we have a tendency to go, that, that's, that's a bad word. Judgment's a bad word. Justice is a, is a good word. Here's the, here's the deal, brothers. You can't separate those. You can't have justice in a court without a judgment. There has to be a ruling in order for justice to take place. And so we need to be careful, even in our, in, in our, in our Christian communities, that we, don't, that we don't lose sight of this, that we don't lean so much into or be, feel so much pressure by the culture to, to take a word that honestly has been twisted and put in a different direction and somehow separate that out as if there's, there's not judgment. There is judgment. You can't have justice without judgment. Now, of course, if you're defining judgment as we walk in faith together, in community, if you're defining judgment of, wow, you're not acting exactly the way that I want you to act or the way that I think uh, you should act towards me. And I'm just going to judge you because I think you should be like this and instead you're like this and there's a judgmental attitude towards you. Well, that's sinful. We know that from Scripture. But if I'm not walking in obedience to the Lord, if I'm walking away from Jesus, please, please love me enough to judge me and to, to make a ruling on what's going on in Todd's life. At least come to make an investigation of whether or not there should be a ruling. <laughs> At least inquire and find out, does there need to be... And if you find out, make the judgment, brothers. Love me enough to say, Todd, this isn't right before the Lord. And we love you. And I'm telling you, in my sinfulness, I might say, at least in my heart, if I don't have the guts to say it out loud, well, you guys shouldn't judge me. And that's baloney. <laughs> if you're coming to me with the word of God and compassion and a desire to draw me back to Christ, please bring that, 
bring that type of judgment in my life. That judgment that would look at the holiness of God and make a ruling in order that there might be justice. What is the justice in my case? It would be this, that I would repent and that I would appeal to what Christ has done to bring justice in my life by His, by his sacrifice, by, what, by how He has paid the price. But notice, too, in these verses, as we think about the justice of God being revealed in verses uh, 11 through 13. And, you're, and notice, too, the word that appears three times in two of those verses. Three times it says corrupt or corrupted. And we need to make sure that we understand because uh, that the earth was by this time mostly self-destroyed. In other words, what God had intended and created humanity, what God had intended as he, as he brought about man and, 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 and created this environment in which God himself settles into his creation and it becomes a sanctuary for God and for the worship of God and he's the crown of creation humanity to be in fellowship, to be in close personal intimacy with God. All of that has been by man at this point mostly self-destroyed. They are with their, their pedal uh, all the way to the floor, they are driving God's creation off the cliff. And the only thing that's happening that's keeping them from doing that is actually the restraining, the restraining mercy of God. The only thing that's keeping them from, from going in the direction they want to go, which is complete self-destruction, is the, is the mercy of God. It's not as if everybody was just kind of a decent guy or kind of, you know, yeah, there's some bad things and, you know, they maybe they don't understand stuff and it's just generally, you know, they're, it, it, they're not doing a, a good job of, of, of uh, taking care of each other in the world and, wow, God's kind of being harsh. He's making this judgment about destroying everything. It's not like that. They were destroying everything. They were self-destructing. And this appears other, other places in Scripture where we, we understand that what's going on is not so much that humans are minding their own business and God just decides, I want to start over, or I want to do this, you know, I don't like this. Boy, boy God is harsh. No, it, we are, are trying to drive as hard as we can to our own self-destruction, and God's mercy is restraining that. We see this in Romans chapter 1. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 1. And notice how this is described in Romans chapter 1 in regards to our own sinfulness. Paul's writing about the, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of man. It says in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And whether it was what they said is, we don't want God in our lives. We don't want anything to do with God. And then what does it say in verse 24? Therefore, God gave them up. He was restrained. His, 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 his restraining mercy was holding them back from self-destruction. And God just lifted his hand out of the way. You want to drive this off the cliff? You want a life without me? Okay. Have at it. Says that again in verse 26. For this reason, 
God gave them up to dishonorable passions. They wanted to be in dishonorable passions. God said, okay, I'm going to pull back my restraining mercy. It says in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. In other words, the only thing, the reason they didn't have a debased mind is because God's restraining mercy was holding them back. So as we think about the justice of God in Genesis 6, let's be very clear that there isn't just this God who's a little bit uptight about how things should be, and, uh, and so he's starting over. No, we're, we're well aware, aren't we, brothers, in our own sinfulness that, 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 that it is our inclination without the restraining mercy and the ultimate grace of transformation that our own dark hearts will drive ourselves to self-destruction. We will, we will destroy our families ourselves. We will destroy our careers ourselves. We will destroy our relationships ourselves. We will destroy uh, other people ourselves. And unless the restraining mercy of God holds it back, we're headed there. The judgment of God is to let go of His restraining mercy and to let those things happen. And so this is where the justice of God leads us to. God gave them over, gave them up. Well, then we see in verses 14 through 17, the sovereignty of God. So we see the, the man of God, the justice of God. Verses 14 through 17, we see the sovereignty of God. It's been fun this week to, uh, to look uh, here in these verses to think about the size of the ark and to, uh, to do some study and think, I mean, this thing is massive. Um, you know, I, I, maybe some of you have been there. You can actually uh, now go see the ark. It was built in Kentucky the Ark Experience, and there is uh, an ark. They use the larger dimensions, so rather than being 450 feet long, it's 510 feet long, um, and you can, maybe some of you have seen it. I actually never really wanted to go see the Ark Experience in Kentucky uh, until this week, and now I was like, wow, I wish we could all go, and we could have amen right there in front of the ark. That would be pretty cool uh, to do that, um, but this thing was massive. Um, using the conservative measurements, it would be 450 feet long. It would be 75 feet wide. It would be 45 feet high. It was massive. Now, again, skeptics would say, well, I mean, there was no boat built that big ever, uh, no wooden boat ever built that big. How could it possibly in these ancient times build? Okay, I hear you. Maybe there wasn't any boat built that big uh, that we know of outside of what this account says. In, but there were buildings built that big by that time. Archaeologists, again, whether they're, they're believers or not, would agree that there were, there were structures this large built at the time. So it's not, like, it's not unbelievable to think that this structure couldn't have been built. But it was, it was massive. And probably uh, there's been a lot of uh, speculation about what its shape was like um, over uh, the history, uh, over the last uh, you know, few thousand years. Um, probably it was... It was probably a lot more like a, a coffin with a rounded bottom than it really was. Sometimes, um, like the, the one they show in the, the ark that they built in the ark experience in Kentucky, um, you know, looks like a really nice sailing boat. Um, and I'm not sure they had that kind of technology to put this giant keel down the middle and things like that. Now, clearly it had to have, it had to have been built in some, it couldn't have just been a box because if a box, you stick a box uh, even if it floats in the water, any of the slightest wave, and the whole thing's going to roll over. So there had to be some way in which it balanced. And, uh, but, but here in these verses, it doesn't tell us exactly that. But it does tell us specifically the dimensions of the ark and what God wants done. Now, you might say to yourself at this point, Todd, how in the world do you see the sovereignty of God in these verses? How is that revealed for us? I mean, there's three ways it's revealed to us. 
The first is this, the specifics of what's written here. It's very specific about what God wants to happen, about how this is to be built. And we see that throughout Scripture. When you read Exodus and Deuteronomy, specifics about the temple, specifics about even the, even the robes that the priests would wear, specifics about the sacrifices. You see things very... When, when, you, when you see uh, God speaking to Joshua about how he wants Jericho to be defeated, it gets really specific. In fact, in one place, I think it's Exodus 32, it's talking about the, the robes that the high priests were to wear. And it, and, it, and it talks even about the three types of thread that God wanted to be used in those robes. Why does this show God's sovereignty? Well, I think over and over again in Scripture, God is saying, I am God. You need to do it exactly as I said. You don't get to decide how salvation happens. You don't get to go, well, I think salvation should happen this way. I think God is being a little too specific here. This idea that Christ is the only way to God? Well, maybe there's other ways to God. God's saying, no, I am God. I decide how salvation is. When it says in Exodus 32, you need to use these three types of thread. Well, was that an optional thing? <laughs> you know, if they, didn't, if they couldn't get that thread or they ran out, do they just need to go, you know, we're going to use some, we're going to use some of this blue thread. No. God is God. He's the one who's going to decide. And it never gets more specific than when it's talking about some type of salvation in Scripture. And I think God is making the point to us, I'm the one that designed salvation. I'm the one that decides how it happens. And here specifically, he's deciding this is the way it's going to happen. Second way we see God's sovereignty in these verses is uh, there's no, even in the ark experience in in Kentucky, there's there's nothing about the ark that allows Noah to navigate this thing. There's no way to steer it. So what does that mean? That means that the, the total direction of where this ark is going to go once it starts floating in the floodwaters is completely up to God. There is no instruction to Noah when the flood begins about where he's supposed to take the boat because he has no ability to take the boat anywhere. The, the ark of salvation, that ark of salvation is completely in the hands of God. It was designed by God specifically and now its, it's, its movement is completely in the hands of God. And then, of course, we see, even in the midst of this, the, the justice, verse 17, for behold, God says, behold, I will bring a flood of waters. He is in control. God is in control, and it's God's world. I'm going to do what I want to my world. When I design salvation, it's going to be specific, and I'm the one that designs it. No one else designs it. And when I take us through to salvation, I'm the navigator. I'm the one that does this. God is completely sovereign. and he's, he's revealing to his people his sovereignty, his absolute control. And then we see in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 4, <laughs> number 4, verse 18 through 21, the mercy of God. So we've seen the man of God, the justice of God, the sovereignty of God. And then verses 18 through 21, the mercy of God. How beautiful is it in the midst of this, this, uh, this statement of I, ha- I will bring floodwaters. And look what it says at the end 
of verse 17. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then here's one of those great turns. This great, but now. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you. A great shift, a great turn. What is this? What is this happening? Seeing the holiness of God, the, the justice of God, the, uh, the sovereignty of God, we see that there has to be judgment. And then all of a sudden, what are we? God is revealing His mercy. In Exodus 33, when, when God re- speaks to Moses and He says, I want, you to re- I want to reveal my character to you. I want to, I want to show you who I am. And as He does that, there's this, there's this great statement by God as He describes His character. He says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is who I am. And as A.W. Tozer, that great, great theologian, said, listen, there is nothing in us. There is absolutely nothing in us that would cause God to love us. Therefore, when God sets His love upon us, there is nothing in us that can keep God from loving us. There is nothing in us that would make God love us. Therefore, when God sets His mercy on us, when He sets His compassion on us, there is nothing in us that could keep God from loving us. I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. I will give compassion on who I give compassion. That is who I am. God is revealing His character right here in Genesis 6. He wants God's people, He wants us to know that He is a God of mercy. And we need to remember mercy and grace are, are two are little different things, little, little differences between mercy and grace. Right here we're seeing the mercy of God. The mercy of God has to do with not getting what we deserve, not getting the judgment we deserve. That's mercy. So we ought to have judgment and we don't get the judgment, then we are, we are shown mercy. Moses here is, uh, excuse me, Noah here is being shown mercy. He deserves to die with the rest of humanity, but God gives him mercy by providing uh, a, a, a safety from the judgment. Later on, and I'm going to leave this for George next week because in the end of chapter 8 and the and first part of chapter 9, uh, it elaborates on the Noahic covenant, the covenant here that God speaks about. We get to hear it described in, in fuller terms, so I'm going to leave that for next week. But that covenant then becomes grace. See, mercy is not getting the judgment we deserve. Grace is getting blessing that we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding judgment. Grace is is when you hear that you and I are co-heirs with Christ. That all the blessings and and the glory and everything that has been won by Christ has been placed on your account. And all the blessings are for you. You are a co-heir. You've been signed on into the inheritance. You see, brothers, here that just the undeserved mercy of God being revealed. Noah didn't deserve it. Noah didn't deserve it. But God says, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy, and I'm going to reveal it to God to, to the world. I'm going to reveal it to the men of Amen in 2019. This is who I am. This is my character. And then finally, we get to the response of God's man. See, this whole thing is not ultimately about Noah. It's about God. 
right? So we're going to have all these verses about who God is, and then we literally just have one verse that's ultimately about what Noah did, his response to all these things, and it's absolutely beautiful. It says in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. All. Wow. He did all that God commanded. Can you imagine this hundred-year struggle? I was thinking about that this week. Probably from, from what we see in Scripture, it's probably a hundred years from the time God said, I want you to build this boat until the first floodwaters started coming. hundred years. And that makes sense, right? If it's just you and your three sons that have to build this boat, it's probably taking you a hundred years, right? It's just a, it's a big project. Can you imagine the struggle? Noah did all that God commanded him. Just think, first of all, the struggle of, of this massive project. I mean, it is this huge, pro- the, the work that was involved in this. I'm sure there were days when Noah got up in the early part of this thinking, and maybe in the middle, and maybe 80 years into it. God, this is too much. This work is too hard. This, I, I'm not going to accomplish this. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. I've been working 50 years. I can't even tell if this thing looks like a boat. (laughs) All this work. But Noah did all that God commanded him. And then think of the embarrassment. We've we've thought about this before. The embarrassment of, 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 of people noticing what's going on and asking he and his sons, what, what's this thing with you? What, what are you doing here? You're building a boat? You're not even near a lake, river. Not, and what is, it's huge. It's not good. Just the embarrassment of his, embarrassment of his sons, getting his sons to like, hey, let's get up and build this boat again. God told me this, and so come help me. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you read some of the, the editorials, even of the building of the Ark Experience in Kentucky, if you read some of the editorials that were taking place prior to the completion of this thing, I mean, that guy, that guy was having to face some embarrassment. People were like, what are you doing? You're building the ark in Kentucky. Like, why are you doing, is this going to be a, 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 what do they say, an amusement park for Jesus? You know, all, and just the embarrassment of that. And yet Noah did all that God commanded him. But even more than that, it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, It says about Noah that he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a herald of righteousness. What does it mean that he was a preacher of righteousness? It means this. It wasn't that he was just quietly building his boat and some people were coming along and going, wow, that's stupid. And he's a little embarrassed. No, it actually means that when they were were coming along, that, that Noah was giving the answer, that he was talking to them. That he was a preacher of righteousness. He was declaring. He was declaring the righteousness of God. And he was saying to this wicked and violent uh, society, you need to repent. God's judgment is coming. You need to repent. This this is what God has told me to do. And, And you need to understand the holiness of God. Can you imagine the ridicule and the anger? And if they're in that violent culture, if God hadn't protected Noah and his sons, he would have been killed. And yet, for a hundred years, he was a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. How hard was it to walk in faithfulness? And I thought, 
how did Noah make it? How did Noah make it a hundred years? And the, the text tells us how he made it. There's two things he had, and he only had two things. He had the promise of God, I will make a covenant with you. And he had the presence of God, Noah walked with God. The only thing Noah had to make it, a hundred years of faithfulness, to do everything God had commanded him, was the promise of God and the presence of God. And brothers, as we close out this morning, I want to remind you of something even more amazing. How are you going to make it in faithfulness? Let me, let me be clear. You have both of those things. If you have Christ in your life, you have both of those things in an abundance that Noah never knew. You don't just have one promise of God saying, I will make a covenant with you. You and I actually have promise upon promise upon promise upon promise. And then in Corinthians it says, don't you know that all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are privileged in the history, in the redemptive history of the world to live on this side of the cross and to not just hope and believe in the promise that is to come, but actually to know that the salvation that God has for us was an act of human history, not just a feeling in our hearts, but that it actually occurred. And that we can be assured that the promises of God towards us will be fulfilled. We know it. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, if God has given you His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how will He not along with Him give you all things? You and I have the promises of God in abundance. And we have the presence of God in a way that, that Noah didn't have. God walked with Noah. What does it say about those who are in Christ? Christ ascends to heaven and he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to dwell inside you. That you and I are going to be temples of the Holy Spirit. That he dwells within us. The presence of God is not simply a presence that walks alongside us, brothers, but it is a presence that exists in us. And so when you and I walk out of here today and think, how am I going to make it today? How am I going to make it in faithfulness this week? How am I going to do all that God commanded me to do? How am I going to walk in faithfulness for the next decade or the next five decades? Well, you have an abundance what Noah had, promises of God, presence of God. Whew. Praise be to God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and the richness and the depth of your word. Oh Lord, thank you that we get to hold it in our hands, that we get to sit here in freedom and safety and study it, that we get to see you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Lord, we would have never known you. In our own minds, we would have never come up with who you are. We would have never understood justice and your sovereignty. We've never understood your mercy, except that you revealed it to us. So thank you. And thank you for your promises that are all yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to dwell inside of us. Oh, Father, by the strength of your Spirit, would you help us to walk in faithfulness, to respond to the mercy and grace that you have poured out upon us. Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are.
praying all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.